Welcome to the inaugural edition of Anthropod, brought to you by Cultural Anthropology, the journal of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. I'm Bascom Guffin. And I'm Gran Otsky, and we'll be your hosts for the next 45 minutes or so. So what we're listening to right now is the sound from a platform on the Yamanote line, is that how you say it? Yeah. Of the Tokyo commuter train system. This is the most iconic and one of the busiest lines in the system. I used to ride this all the time, and I think anybody who's been to Tokyo has been on this line. Well, I haven't been to Tokyo at all, but I've been riding the New York City subway system on and off since the mid-90s. And frankly, this sounds like a totally different experience. I remember these sounds from living and visiting Tokyo. And about 10 years ago, you started being able to use your cell phone to figure out routes for the train in Tokyo. And you could tell it where you were and where you wanted to go and what time you wanted to get there. And so the phone would then say, you know, get on this train at 12 o'clock and get off at 12.06 and walk to the next platform for three minutes and catch the next train at 12.09. And the trains would come exactly as the phone said. And the, f the phone would say, you know, it would take three minutes to walk there. And it would take three minutes to walk there. What? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was, it's like crazy precise. It was like having the ground sort of come up to meet you as you're walking through the city, uh, at least when it works. Right, when it works. But how does the system react when there's a breakdown of some sort? This is the issue we'll be getting at as we talk with Michael Fish today about his article in the most recent issue of Cultural Anthropology, Tokyo's Commuter Train Suicides and the Society of Emergence. Michael is an assistant professor of anthropology and of social sciences at the University of Chicago. I'd like to start by asking the basic question, which is, how did you become interested in Japan and the Tokyo train system in particular? as a research area yeah yeah great um well i really my initial interest in japan were around questions of technology and, and, and culture and i think i started off the way a lot of people started off in the mid 90s with an interest in, in animation and questions of technology and animation mm -hmm. and uh uh i started in that direction and uh, the field quickly filled up and in terms of people who were looking at that in the late 90s. And I felt that I wanted to be doing something different. And I wasn't necessarily interested only in the realm of representation, which was what a lot of, a lot of anime was looking at. So I, I was looking for other ways of thinking about questions of technology and culture. So wow. I went to Japan kind of just looking for a subject and you know how one does in preliminary field work. And uh, I missed the train. <laughs> so I went out one night to, to what was called a, a poetry slam. And it, it went on, I think, past one o'clock in the morning. And when I got out, there was no train back. And that was the first time I realized what it meant to miss the train in Tokyo, which made me think of what the train is for people who live in Tokyo. And it's not that the city stops after the train stops in the evening. It just becomes a different kind of city. Uh -huh, yeah. And I was fascinated to see that, that there's this sort of space of in-between, between, between um, I don't know, 1.30 in the morning and 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the morning or so. 
and that there's all there's just a completely different kind of life that springs up in certain areas of the city and by morning it's all gone it's, it's all swept away and, and it's just a, a different city comes to life so I was really I became interested for, in that and sort of the spaces have been between that are opened up by technology and how those spaces have been between aren't necessarily exterior to systems but but very much part of them so Michael could you actually describe what the experience of riding the train in Tokyo is and and maybe maybe contrast a little bit sort of those maybe those first hours of being on the train uh, or compare that with sort of the the, com the commuter rush which is which was a little bit yeah. more about what your your paper was yeah the commuter rush is is, is really uh, a limit of the entire system so it, it really stands out as something that's 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 um, particularly remarkable and it's it's I think you know there are other cities in the world that have just as much um, crowding as, as Tokyo these days but Tokyo handles it in a particular kind of way but to go back into the um, the first question you asked in terms of what's the experience of being on the train it's funny because uh, I just had the chance to ride the Chicago L which I don't do a lot because I live in Hyde Park so I rode it down to the airport and just that, that it that brought forth for me the, the, the difference between riding trains in, in Japan and riding them in, in Chicago or somewhere else. It's just here you feel you're, you're sort of encased in this grimy tin can and it's cold, <laughs> and, you know, the, everything, it's loud and you, you're just, you're not really, you're not really comfortable. But uh -huh. in Japan, it's, this, the, it's very smooth, first of all, and you're insulated from the outside, um, both in terms of there's the air that doesn't get in, but also the sound. You feel like you're sort of riding in a, in a smooth sound, um, a sound studio, and it's it's very comfortable. And it's very, there's lots to look at, especially in Tokyo with, with all the advertisements. I mean, everywhere you would lay your eye, there's, there's something colorful, there's something that's going to attract your attention. It's designed that way, obviously, on purpose, because they have a captive audience. Mm -hmm. But also, right. it's, it's very much, uh, it's, it's a very smooth and, and experience that almost lulls you to sleep in a nice sort of way. So it's, it's very different from being on the train here. And there are a lot uh -huh. of people sleeping on the train in Japan. There are a lot of people sleeping on the train in Tokyo, and and you know there's all sorts of reasons of why that's that's so. Um, it's something I deal with in my book, but there, there's a particular kind of rhythm and register to the system that's mm. ingrained in people's bodies, and mm -hmm. people they become very comfortable with that system. There's you know there's the way the train speeds up and slows down between each each station is something that that's almost standardized, or they try to standardize it across the system. So there's a and it's very it's very uh, it's it's very um it soothes the body. And people, you know, just very easily drift off to sleep. Plus also they're very tired. When <laughs> 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 you ride the system is you know, there's it's one thing that always shocked me is that, you know, coming back at even eleven o'clock at night in Tokyo. Uh -huh. And getting off the train at eleven thirty night, and just you know, just it was it was packed with people in suits coming back from work, yeah. and it's just shocking. Part of what you talk about in the article is people waiting for the train, <coughs> right? So, so part of the system is that sort of waiting area uh, before yeah. the train comes in. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things in Japan is that people line up for the train, and that's something that, I mean, it's sort of shocking for people who haven't been to Japan. 
uh, and you see before the train comes in, people will find the designated areas on, on the platform and they'll, they'll line up, usually, you know, three or four abreast, and, you know, they'll wait patiently for the train. So there's a whole, or there's, that's something you definitely don't see here. And so that waiting for the train, I mean, to borrow, to borrow the problem, it's, it's sort of, you know, to use the problem, it's, it's, you know, it's an element of training, right, where they've been taught to line up, and mm-hmm. that's something right. that goes way back. You, you know, there's actually really interesting articles from, in Japanese from the, from the 1920s about how they, they went and, and, and measured how long it took for a group of students to get on and how, you know, different formations on the platform would allow boarding in different ways and different times. So it's really something that's been ingrained in, in the population for, for a long time. So it's interesting to see that. Um, it doesn't mean, of course, that people are just sort of mechanistically conditioned to the system. I think that people actually really are very much attuned to the system and that there's a, a communication rather than a, a oppression of communication with the commuters rather than oppression of the commuter body. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So it's, it's, yeah, so I just want to be careful not to, not to give the image, <laughs> you know, Tokyo being this overly disciplined sort of society. Um, right. There is a lot of order, but there's a lot of, I'm trying to say there's a lot of disorder that's mm-hmm. used. And, and, and it sounds like the discipline is where you might actually call something discipline. It's, it's, it's something that you could also say it's sort of generated in with from within or, or sort of yeah, generated cooperatively yeah. with the system. Yeah, I mean people really they understand to some extent that their 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 behavior in the system is I mean if they want to get to work, they're part of that whole system. They don't think of themselves as, as, as really different. They think of you know what they do influences the, the whole system, whether it's gonna work and whether it's not gonna work. So they they really know that uh-huh. you know it's contingent on everyone you know, doing, you know, behaving properly in many ways. So uh-huh. it's something that I tried to stress in the article that, you know, there's a technological and a social dimension to the system and both have to work. You can't right. have one, both have to work really well together and both are really working at sort of at, at, at um, beyond capacity. So if the social situation is beyond capacity, so is the technological system. Yeah. So when people are waiting for the waiting for the train, you know they line up and they they keep to themselves. A lot of people just look at their cell phones and listen to music and and wait very patiently for the train. Um, you talked about the difference in experience of mm-hmm. riding the L versus the the Tokyo train system, but you also talk about the Tokyo train system is run in a very new unique way compared to yeah. other big city train yeah. systems around the world. So can you talk a yeah. little bit about that difference? Yeah, this is something that, that was, um, it was shocking for me to, to discover was that um, the attention that's paid to managing the, the diagram, the traffic diagram, and I think that that's, that's really the way that they've found to, uh, in Tokyo to, to transport a commuter population that far exceeds the actual infrastructural capacity. Can you just really briefly describe what that diagram is or what it does? Right. So the diagram is, I mean, all, all train systems have a diagram. It's a traffic diagram that's, that's mapped by um, uh, uh, space stations in one axis and time on the other. And uh, the diagram is, it's, it shows a series of lines. So each line is a train system. It's, each line is a train. The angle of the line is, is the speed of the train with you know, more verticals. There's, speeding up, more horizontal slowing down. And um, the line, the train traffic diagram really tells you everything that you need to operate a system. It tells you, you know, the kind of train, the stopping time per stations, the, the, um, the, the platform that the train will go into at each station. So it really, it, for an expert who knows how to read that, 
it tells you basically everything you would need to operate the, the train. So what um, the diagram is, is, is developed and then implemented, and then there's sort of the reality of how the system works. And the two, the traffic diagram, the, the ideal diagram has to negotiate with the reality of the city, which is not just, um, it's not just uh, the trains, it's also the people and everything else is happening around the city. So it becomes a real, as one, of, as one of my informants said, it's a real index of the social. So it's a way of, of, of mapping the social in some ways as, 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 the, as a provisional relation among, among a multitude of forces. Mm -hmm. Going back to sort of that difference then between Tokyo and Chicago. Yeah, Tokyo, um, they don't really, I mean, the diagram is sort of, it's the schedule pretty much in, in other places in the world. There's no real attempt to, to mediate the system by mediating the diagram constantly. So that's something that, that Japan developed specifically. And uh, it was interesting to see because I was at a railroad convention with a, with a, um, with a group from JR East and uh, actually from the JR um, Technological Research Center. And, and that's uh, Japan Rail. Japan Rail, right, yeah. right. So um, I was helping them out there and, and that gave me a chance to go around and talk to train companies and representatives from around the world. And I was particularly interested in, in ones from Korea and China who also deal with, with large, uh, high capacity, high, high, high density systems. And I was interested to see that they, they, they don't do that and they don't um, mediate the system in the same way that they do in Japan. There's not as much attention to sort of really finessing the interval between, between stations the way that they do in, in Japan, really finessing the, the diagram to make it able to transport a phenomenal amount of people. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So the next question is, um, what happens when a suicide occurs? Like your, your paper is about sort of how the train system thinks suicide. So can you describe yeah. what that scene looks like? Yeah, well, I mean, it really depends. What happens when a suicide occurs really depends where you are. So if you're stuck in a train, the train, if it's the train that the suicide happened, obviously it's going to come to a, a jolting halt. Mm -hmm. But if you're somewhere else in the system, it will slow down. Then there's a couple seconds or a minute or so where everybody waits. And then the announcement comes and everybody knows it. Uh -huh. And there's just, there's a kind of imperceptible groan that grows through the train car. And everybody sort of, everybody knows, everybody knows what it means when they say that there's been an accident, there's been a human accident mm -hmm. somewhere. And that, you know, momentarily the train has come to a halt and they'll, they'll resume service. And people just generally don't really relate to this. They just, they know, they're so used to it that they, people, you know, they'll start, they'll, pick up their cell phones and they'll make, uh, they'll start texting to, to friends and family or employees to tell them that they're late again, they're going to be late, and people just wait. So I've been on a number of trains when, when that's happened and I've always tried to talk to people, to ask yeah. them about, you know, what do you think is happening, what, what, you know, do you think somebody committed suicide? Nobody really wanted to talk to me, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was really, I was sort of adamant, to, you know, I really pestered people into, you know, into conversation. Uh -huh. And they would say, yeah, perhaps, yeah, there's been a suicide, perhaps, I don't know. And I'd say, you know, what do you think of it? And they have you know, very non-committal answers of, mm, you know. mm -hmm. And they don't, you know, they just, it's just a fact of life. They just kind of, just wait. And you have to wait till it, till, it, till it ends and the train starts moving again. So people have really become used to that. When you're actually in a station, and that happened to be in 2000, um, uh, I think in 2004, when you're in a station, it's it's also it happens very quickly. 
because it happens at the end of the platform usually when the train's coming into the station that's usually where people jump from and uh, the train really grinds to a halt and there's where I was that one there's there was a um, not really shouts but a kind of a, yeah, people you could there there was there was definitely a reaction among people in the crowd but not really not really any screams or shouts or, or shock it was just it it just it just happened and very quickly, you know, other other aspects come into play. The station personnel rush in to, to move people away from the um, platform. The train that at the time that, that I saw, the train coming into the station was absolutely packed. I mean, people were pressed up against the windows. Mm. And the train was not allowed to open its doors because it wasn't allowed to move into the station. So the people in the train, you could see them. And they were just, you know, absolutely packed, miserable, waiting for 40 minutes without anywhere to go. Yeah, they just they absolutely miserable. No, and, and then um, uh, they, you know, they, the the firefighter, the police, the firefighters arrive first, and they clear the body from the, from the tracks, and the people on the platform just generally stand there and wait, and they put up uh, sometimes a, 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 a tape in order to keep people back, and they've started to put up uh, blue blue uh, tarps in order to sort of keep people from mm. seeing what's going on. But when uh, in two thousand four, in the accident. Uh, Incident that I was at the station for, there were there were no blue tarps. They just quickly moved in and covered up the body, pulled it to the other side of the station, and people just stood there and waited. On one hand, and the other people who could think of an alternative route began streaming out the station, looking for taxis, looking for different connecting uh, uh, stations. You know, people learn to maneuver, and it's a routine of, of maneuvering and. They're very used to, you know, they start mapping out the system, what alternative stations could they take. There's really no relationship to, or really, it doesn't seem like any sort of relation to the, to the person who's committed suicide. Yeah, and that was that was something that I was, that sort of came out in what you were talking about. It, it, do you feel like they're, at least in these instances, and also talking, when you were talking with people on trains that were stuck, that there's almost sort of a denial of the fact of suicide? Yeah, I mean, that's what I tried to get from people when I was there talking to them. And uh, most people, as I said before, didn't, they would, you know, they didn't really want to talk about it with me, especially this pesky foreigner anthropologist coming asking questions about <laughs> this, this event. But I did get a few people to talk to me. And a lot of them said that, you know, in the beginning, they came to the city, came to the, they came to Tokyo, they moved to Tokyo, and they felt that, God, this is so cold of people to relate like this to, you know, somebody's just, their life has ended and if people just don't care. And they said that after a while they began to feel the same way, that it's just, it's just a nuisance for them and they really don't, it's not that they don't care, they don't, they don't have time to care and they don't, it's just too much and they don't, it's, it's too much of an emotional commitment to care. Mm -hmm. So it's, they, you just become that way after living in the city and going through it so many times. That's what's so interesting is that, you know, I think that if you were to ask people in New York, you probably wouldn't come out with that different of an answer. Mm -hmm. Or even Chicago, when, when someone commits suicide from the train, you know, people relate to it. Yes, it's suicide, but they're more disturbed by the um, disorder that it creates. Yeah, and yeah. we well, hardly think about the traffic accidents yeah. other than yeah. as the traffic jam. We're stuck. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, this is the other interesting thing is that in Japan, on every uh, uh, police box at every, um, they have little police boxes at intersection. It always lists the number of deaths and, and injuries in traffic accidents every month. Oh, okay. And it has a red number and a white number. So you're always aware of how many people have died in traffic accidents, how many people have been uh -huh. injured. 
And there's it's very difficult, on the other hand, to find information about um, train mm-hmm. commuter train suicides. Yeah, in in New York City, actually, I think the the announcement that that stops trains basically is they'll talk about a police action. Yeah, and yeah. so and everything. So actually, it's really hard to tell what what. I mean, it could be that somebody was sick on a train. Right. It could be anything. So it sounds right. like actually in Japan, you're actually getting more information about the fact that this is a person on the tracks. Yeah, uh, but you know, it's 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 done in such a way where you don't have to think <laughs> where of you it don't as have a person. To, yeah, it's exactly. it's some sort of human injury, but they leave it very vague, uh-huh. and they don't want to. A uh, part of the reason that I that I was told is they want they don't want to. Um, uh, uh, what's the word? They don't want to 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 ruin anybody's day, you know. Especially if it's somebody's wedding or if it's a very it's in their anniversary, uh, and uh, and a suicide happens that day. You don't want that, that sort of ruins the, the auspiciousness of the occasion. So so yeah. So I mean, we're talking about you know these suicides, and so the the, the title of your piece is Tokyo's commuter train suicides and the society of emergence, and and really at the center of this is. Is the train system, uh, yeah. which will which we'll be getting at really briefly, but uh, a lot of times suicide is sort of addressed uh, through psychological tropes. But what does it mean instead to think about suicide in more anthropological or sociological terms? Yeah, I mean, there's there's suicide and there's commuter train suicide. So I think I, I want to distinguish. <laughs> yeah, I want sure, to distinguish sure, sure. between two of them because suicide. There are people who are doing great work on suicide today in Japan, um, particularly in in terms of you know the economic system and changes in that structure. Um, I don't know Junko Kitanaka is, is someone, for example, who does great work on, on contemporary issues of suicide. So the commuter train suicide, to think anthropologically about a commuter train suicide is, for me, it's, it's to think what the lived experience is within that network and, on one hand, but it's also to think of how that, the network itself sort of informs possibilities or, or informs sort of, how would I say, um, infrastructures of feeling and how it, it, it informs the infrastructure of relationships to, to one another, to, to, to the commuters, to the city. So. Um, and, and, I, and I don't want to say that it determines in any kind of deterministic way, but it definitely it, it informs the way that people can and will relate to the event. And so I think that to think anthropologically about that is to take is to take into account the the not just the people and all sort of the economic uh, forces behind you know driving people to suicide, because in the end we we sort of know that story. But to think of the way that it really sort of proliferates or, or metastasizes through an entire city by, by means of that, by that network. And that network is really the way that it's what mediates the relationships between the people and, and all sorts of different you know, realms of activity within the city. So that brings us to like the big theme in your essay, which is the idea of emergence and you mm. things like mm. possibilities and infrastructures of feeling. So could you talk briefly about what you mean by emergence and why yeah. how does it help you think about the Tokyo train system? Yeah, I mean, I, I really struggled with, with this, um, with this, you know, how to deal with the Tokyo train system and how to deal with the problem of suicide for, for a long time. And I really, and this emergence really came to me when I started talking to the systems engineers and I realized how they were talking about the system and how they wanted to, to perform in a certain sort of non-deterministic way towards the city. 
Mm-hmm. So, but to go back a little bit, emergence is really, um, there, I mean, to talk about emergence, it's, it's a word that just generally denotes something that appears. But the emergence that I'm talking about relates to a, uh, to one trajectory of, or to the trajectory of, of, of thought that comes out of cybernetics and in post-war, where it's a way of thinking about how uh, a network, a simple network of relations will, will develop uh, a pattern of behavior that isn't necessary, necessarily implicit in the structure or in the initial pattern of relationships. So something emerges that, that's unexpected. So could you um, give an example of that? Yeah, I mean, we can think of um, what's a good example of emergence. Um, I mean, the internet was one way of people, the, the one way that people often imagine emergence, that, you know, you, you create all these possibilities of connection and what comes out of it is totally unexpected. Sometimes, you know, crowdsourcing, for example, one, one idea or, or um, the people look at emergence um, in, in uh, insect life, for example, uh, right. with the networks of, of insects uh, communicating with one another and they start, uh, what did I hear about uh, in a radio program I recently heard about, um, fireflies that are generally put in, in, in a single environment, they'll all start, there's a pattern that emerges in, in, with the way that they, they light up. So it's a way of thinking about these networks of relations that 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 lend themselves to different patterns of behavior. So mm-hmm. yeah, so um, emergence then it it becomes through cybernetics a way of talking about a kind of evolution or ontogenesis of life. It it, it gets taken up, particularly in the late nineties and, and uh, late eighties and nineties, uh, as in, in relation to complex systems theory. And I think that what we see today, and for example, when a lot of the, the discussion that happens around the economy and allowing the economy to grow and not, and not being regulated, there's this idea that if we just let things happen, all sorts of new stuff will emerge out of it. So any kind of regulation from, you know, from be it government or, what, or whatnot is going to impede this kind of protein bottom-up energy that's going to create all these economic possibilities. It'll find its own order. Yeah, so it's this, exactly. It's this self, um, self-governing, self-ordering system. So it's really become a, a trope behind, in the political sphere, behind notions of decentralization and deregulation. And in some ways, I think that we could almost think of something like neoliberalism as a kind of discourse of network emergence. That really, that really puts this, you know, impetus on, 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 on allowing society to, to do some sort of magic or mysticism, you know, mystic emergence around it. I mean, this is something I'm, I'm working out, but it, it, it's, it's mm-hmm. the emphasis that's put on decentralization and on uh, decentralization that's going to allow semi-autonomous beings to be in, co- in contact with one another and that's going to, um, to lend itself to all sorts of innovative energy. So it's, it's mm-hmm. how innovation then gets talked about and how um, the network becomes a really important paradigm, a really important way of imagining all sorts of relations that it's going to proliferate out into, into all kinds of you know, um, economic activities and energies and all sorts of uh, uh, new products if it's just let to, left to emerge. But it's also mm-hmm. assumed that this kind of emergence happens really at, at and to borrow the, the phrase I use in, um, in, in the article, and this is borrowing from Stuart Kaufman's notions on complex theories, it's that emergence happens best at the edge of chaos. So it's where, it's where, it's where relationships are, are, kind of, are kind of unstable. Mm-hmm. And if it's the un- instability of relationships, it's the instability of the network that allows for new formations to, to, to arrive or to, to emerge that are formations that don't have any correspondence 
they're, they're formations that were of, how should I say, of correspondence, but without, they're not similar to the former relations of the, of the network. That kind of reminds me of Emily Martin's work on, on bipolar disorder, like you're sort yeah, of at yeah. that frayed edge of order and able to take advantage exactly. of these manic energies. Yeah, so it's this, it's this idea that, you know, these metastable states, particularly in the economy, if you, if you, it's the instability that actually is the engine of, dis, the engine of, of creativity mm -hmm. rather than stability. So there's almost a, a, an embrace of precarity as, as you know, as something that we need. Mm -hmm. We need environments mm -hmm. on the edge of collapse because that's when things happen that are really interesting, supposedly, right? And so, yeah. and it's this idea also, that particularly in environmentalism, that, uh, that we'll never reach a state of collapse. Things will just morph into the next phase. And mm -hmm. so something, a new organization, a new, a new order will emerge out of it. So I, someone like uh, someone that I cite in the article, um, Linda Cooper, shows that that really gets taken up in the late in the early seventies as as a way of thinking past uh, uh, paradigms of, of global environment as as on on the verge of um, entropic decline where you know everything's it's eventually going to collapse. It gets taken up in terms of environmentalism and also in terms of economy as a way of thinking about. An endless regenerative, poten regenerative potential inherent in economy and environment. Now that sounds like what you're taking away from the idea of emergence is this sort of endless regeneration in yeah. the Tokyo train system. Yeah, exactly, and that's where you know it's it's the uh, sort of eternal return in some ways. You know, you can uh -huh. there's no there's there's no there's no limit to it. So you can just keep and you want that to happen. You want it to generate all sorts of new things. So, but I think emergence is a particularly um, powerful concept. I think it's an interesting concept because in many ways it gets us past a dialectic because it doesn't necessarily assume the work of a kind of negative aspect. There's no negative force to, per se that has to be at the core. Mm -hmm. So it's not a synthesis of positive and negative, it's a synthesis of, 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 of multiplicity. So it, it's a very powerful concept. My problem with it is that the way that it gets imagined uh, in, in, in a lot of contemporary situations is particularly as a kind of information emergence. And what, for me, what that, that discounts is actually, you know, it discounts living flesh and blood and bodies. Uh, I think it's, right. it's, it's, it reduces life to an informatic premise, which I think that has been discounted by a lot of, a lot uh, has been sort of debunked in, in academia, but it's still taken up in, in infrastructure as, as a real premise. One of the problems with with that idea of emergence that, that comes out of cybernetics is that it you know cybernetics creates an analogy between the technological, the biological, and the social, but it does it initially as finding a common logic that allows a collapsing of all three of those dimensions into one common logic of, of information uh, feedback and communication. So what what what's interesting for me is the fact that when you don't collapse those, when you don't collapse the technological, the biological, and the social as all reducible to some sort of informational logic, but you look at how the interaction between those different things actually creates, it's very generative. So the technological and the biological are very different kinds of materials. They, they might have similar uh, correspondences in the way that they use the information per se is utilized across them, but technology and, and, and metal and flesh are very different things. And because of the, their different kinds of materials, the interaction between them is not going to create the same thing. It's going to create uh, something different. So it's, yeah, so it's, it's, a way of, it's a way of thinking about the relationship between the technological, the biological, and the social 
as generative rather than collapsing it. So, so what would you say are maybe some of the consequences of um, each way of thinking, and and you can maybe maybe couching it within the with within these um, commuter train suicides. Yeah, um, well, with, when it's very clear what I tried to show in the article is, is you know, with the Tokyo commuter train system, it, I think that the informatic premise has been uh, embedded in, you know, the, the current ATO system or what I was talking about in the article mm-hmm. as really a way to treat the commuters as, as information nodes that can be mined for, for potential consumer value. And that really falls in line with what we see, you know, with, with data mining that, that, that happens in a lot of society these days that really falls along these, these, these new economic potentials or new, new economic imperatives to create value out of, out of, out of ways of, out of labor that isn't necessarily uh, people going to factories and working in different, you know, different forms of informatic labor. So, um, so I, what I find problematic with that is that you know, it treats commuters as, as information. It doesn't deal with the fact that commuters are bodies and that they're crammed into trains. And mm-hmm. in one sense, what's so interesting for me to see something like Atos is uh, or the community, the way that the new and, system... And, and Atos is the basically, if, if you will, in a very crude way of saying it, sort of the control system for the right. commuter trains. Right. The, so, the sort of informationally driven control uh, system. Control system. Control right. system. Exactly. Okay. So what I find so interesting about this is that, you know, when they reimagine the train system, first of all, not as not as commuter, not as um, transporting commuters, but transporting customers, and that it, that it's supposed, the system is supposed to be designed according to you know fulfilling lifestyle needs and desires, and supposed to attend to the to the needs of each each commuter customer. And so they imagine the system as part of this new post-industrial information society, Japan. And yet they still have the packed train every morning, and that's totally incommensurable with the way that they're imagining the system as this new kind of Japan. So. They they really don't really don't know what to do with the packed train, because people packed into trains that's part of industrial Japan and that's that's you know that's people going to work, mm-hmm. so they don't it, it it makes it very difficult for them to to for the people who are um, thinking this 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 system as as a site of new kinds of value creation, they really don't know what to do with that with that that scene of the packed train. So you mentioned Atos already, which is the focus of uh, where you look at in the train system. But what do you mean when you write that the train system thinks suicide or Atos thinks suicide? Yeah, obviously, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that the train system actually thinks. I'm saying, um, I'm, I'm, and I, think I should say here that I was really inspired by Tom Lamar's book on Anime Machine, where he talks about you know, the Anime Machine is, is thinking, uh, thinking technology. Hmm. So, and of course, then he's taking from people like Simon Don and Guitari and, and, and Deleuze, mm-hmm. who, who use these, these uh, idioms in order to develop new analytics. So, what I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about how the system, it's not necessarily, it doesn't determine the way that, that people can think, but it definitely informs the way thought can happen. So, it becomes a sort of infrastructure of thought. So it's a way of, of acknowledging the fact that thought never really happens contained within a body, but it's distributed not just among people, but also along uh, among the, uh, the kind of technologies that allow thought to happen. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, there's there's a lot of work that's done on the way that you know that urban design sort of moralizes you know space and time. So the way that people inhabit buildings actually you know create certain kind of behaviors, and and there's a lot of attention that's been placed on that in in um, urban urban research. And so this is really it's a way of thinking about how the structure of the system and how the different sort of technologies that are brought to bear really uh, inform the way that, that suicide. Is, is, is experienced and can be thought. Mm-hmm. So it's really looking at the infrastructure, not just as an infrastructure of you know, transportation, but really as, 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 a, as a dimension of, of thought. It sounds like the train system is almost a, like a prosthetic for all these human bodies. That yeah, but a prosthetic is a continuation of the body in many ways. So this is it's the fact that, you know, there's, that it's not a prosthetic because it's technology. So, and that's where I, I always want to draw the, the line between you know uh-huh. that sort of cyborg cyborg thinking that that it, that it thought needs the technology in order to take place. So it's 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 the different. It's again, it's the difference between the way that human beings think and the way that technology operates uh-huh. that allows thought to to take place between them. So it's it's more about the gap between yeah. Uh, people and the techno- technological system yeah, rather than yeah. thinking of them as somehow continuous with each other. Yeah, I mean, we could think, you know, pen and paper, it's not really a prosthetic, but we use them to think, I and mean, that's how we map out ideas. Yeah. And the way we think with the pen and paper is very different than the way we think with a computer, and and there's, you know, I'm sitting in an office right now, and there, uh-huh. there are you know, books on the shelf, and this is all this is, this is all part of my infrastructure of thought. Right. So, so, so almost... <clears throat> sort of getting at that Latourian idea of the exactly. assemblage, yeah. uh, or 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 maybe even going farther and and, and into ideas of maybe hybrids, uh, human non-human hybrid. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, Latour is obviously at the core of, of a lot of this thinking, and I think with, um, as I as I wrote in some of the questions earlier, that you know it's hard not to be a Latourian when you when you answer this these when you work on this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was in, in, immensely um, influential in my thought, but I've really um, gone back to some of the influences on the tour, and mm-hmm. that Gilbert Simondon being one of them, uh, um, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, of course, being other ones. So it's a way I think that what I found sort of necessary was to to comment the idea of the assemblage as this kind of provisional relationship among heterogeneous realities, and that's a term that Latour uses. It, not just to sort of map out the relationship to follow the follow the term or to follow the technology, but to really pay attention to the gap between uh, the gap that allows this relationship to, to uh, around which this relationship is organized, and then how mm-hmm. that gap, how that that interval or space is then is then perceived in different ways, and how it gets you know perceived socio-historically and, and as as doing different kinds of labor, different different kinds of you know operating under different systems of value, mm-hmm. which almost seems like it could it could circle back to this idea of emergence where the, exactly. where, where, where the gap is generative yeah exactly so there I mean that's kind of what I'm trying to draw attention to in, in the article is that in one sense that gap is it, it's imagined as a, as a site of entropy where the gap always has to be you know closed as much as they can but not eliminated because that would that makes the system um, not run but to at least hold that margin of indeterminacy at, 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 its, at its absolute minimum. Whereas what we see later with emergence, there's a desire to sort of see that gap as that which you know that which allows all sorts of new formations to take place and new energies to new new, new kinds of um, forms of innovation to happen. So the gap really becomes a site of emergence. 
so I mean, one of the things that you're saying when you're when you're talking about how this idea of emergence gets uh, uh, placed, the way that Atos sort of uses this idea of emergence, which results in basically in commuters becoming data points rather than bodies, mm. um, is interesting, and it's and it's especially interesting in this context of suicides, right? Because mm. it's a point in time where a human body has imposed itself on the system exactly. in a very clear yeah. way. Yeah. Um, and it's a human body in this case. I'm not sure what, what your knowledge or experience of sort of non-human animal bodies also getting in the way. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, and then how, how each of these gets, how, how these might get treated in different yeah, ways and yeah. what this might say about how the system is relating to these different types of bodies. Yeah, I've been in chains where, where dogs have wandered onto the tracks and that's usually at the, um, what do they call it, the um, railroad crossings. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, the trains, they, it's, they hit a dog. It's, uh, sometimes I've, the one incident that I, that, I was, that I saw where they actually hit the dog, the driver got off and just moved the dog off the track. And just continued on, and there's no, there's no, um, there's no secondary sort of uh, uh, mechanism of accountability that and, and accident uh, investigation that, that kicks in as it does with a human body on the track. Mm -hmm. So with with people, if you know, if they're very strict in terms of um, the regulations that have to happen. If if it's an actual accident, it has to be reported in certain ways, and that that involves other uh, other. Um, other interest, other other administrations it involves the police and involves the firefighters. So um, animals just they generally don't get treated at the same level, which is I guess you'd kind of expect that to some degree. Right, right. but but yeah. that also sort of points up a particular sort of there's there's a special status for the human yeah, uh, yeah. and the human body in this case exactly exactly because it's the you know there's 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 the question of insurance that has to be dealt with you know, a lot of times the people. Jump! Um, they're 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 eager to claim insurance for the family, so that's a family mm -hmm. that's come to debt, and by committing suicide, they get insurance money from for for the family, and they're able able to pay off debt and stuff. So, there's mm -hmm. that's another relationship that that, that I, I work on, that I um, I deal with more in, in the book. So, do you think that dis in in at least some small way disrupts the the idea of these humans as simple data points, or am I or am I oversimplifying even this mm -hmm. idea of of the way Atos is treating people in in this sort of emergence? Um, Which rubric. part disrupts when when it's a human being versus an animal? Or? Yeah, when it like the the fact that this human being is has to be treated. Yeah, within the yeah. system as something other than information. Yeah, they for they um they I mean when I talk to the engineers, they really don't see it. they they want the body off the track as fast as possible. And they really don't, <laughs> you know they they this whole it's just a nuisance for them to have to call in the police. But their regulations are regulations. They have to report it to the Ministry of Transportation, mm -hmm. and right. that's where it becomes uh, it becomes a big issue and. You know, there's, the police have to come in to see if it was an accident or a suicide, and then that 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 has um, implications for how much money can or what kind of, if money can be asked at all from insurance companies, right? For the, oh. the train company or for the family. So, yeah, it becomes a much more it becomes a much larger social issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. but it sounds like it's person or this body basically gets folded back into regimes of information completely and completely. and paperwork and numbers yeah, and money and the like. So, yeah, yeah, completely. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, the family deals with it as a body, obviously. But uh, yeah, there's, there's, I, you know, the one, the, the incident that I, that I was in the station for, I, I hung around the, um, where they, there is the guy, the little places next to the train station, and I, I talked to people who actually knew the person who jumped. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. And that's when you start to learn about you know what happens to the families and for the family it's of course it's it's treated very differently. You know? Sure. Yeah. It's pretty much. I mean, it's what you would expect. So. Yeah. What what kind of impact um, do you want your analysis and your work to have? Well, I'm really I'm really interested. In my my underlying commitment is um, probably environmental. I'm just very worried about where we're going. <laughs> You know, I have a 20-month-old son, and you know, it's hard to look him in the eye and say, hey, I'm sorry, we're, we blew it. <laughs> it's just, I, I just, I, I think, we're, I, I don't know if, I have a very cynical view of the future, and I really, I'm not even sure we're going to make it. I just, I, I think that we really need to change things, and, and I really believe that changing that is just changing our relationship with technology. And we have to begin to think about technology differently and we have to think about you know not just sustainable and the word is so overused these days but you know systems that 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 work in a more natural way mm-hmm. and um yeah and so i'm, I'm very uh, i think that that's in the direction of my my work that's going to take after i finish this book is, is is really trying to come up with or trying to to imagine a different kind of technology, one that's not about extracting resources and doing the same dumb old stuff that we've been doing, mm-hmm. burning fossil fuels and whatnot, because it just doesn't work. I mean, every day I, I, I run along the lakeshore here, and if you were to, the, the, uh, if you were to just, if you look at the, what happens in the lakeshore every day, it's either sunlight or wind and, or waves, there's so much energy there. There's so much energy, I and mean, it's just ridiculous. And we're, and we're all walled up in our glass buildings and we, we, you know, in our brick homes, and we're living a completely incommensurable uh, life that's incommensurable with our environment, and we need to learn, really learn to change that. So I'm really, I really am committed to changing the environment, changing the way we think about the environment. So that's really where, you know, sort of my, my social commitment to it. How does that fit into the research you're going to be doing from now on? Well, um, my research now, I've, I've really become interested in, in, in this, these notions of biomimicry. And it's very popular in Japan. There are a lot of biomimicry institutes. And, of yeah. course, as you can imagine, a lot of it turns into consumer products and the so-called you know, eco-label that everybody uh. has these days. But on the other hand, it, it also imagines a, a kind of technological systems that aren't just premised on sort of this information notion that, that was popular in cybernetics, that they pay close attention to material and design, mm-hmm. that think of nature as, as really uh, specificities of, of kinds of materials and those materials that relate to other materials. And so it's a really interesting movement in, in many respects for, for that, for, for the way it treats materials. And right. it doesn't just deal with form, it deals actually with matter. Well, Michael Fish, we're really happy you took the time today to talk with us about your article. Uh, the name is Tokyo's Commuter Train Suicides and the Society of Emergence. And this article can be found in the May 2013 edition of the Journal of Cultural Anthropology. And uh, we really appreciate that you've taken the time to speak with us. Thank you well, so thank much. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was a good opportunity for me to. You've been listening to Anthropod, brought to you by Cultural Anthropology the Journal of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. Your hosts have been Gran Otsky. 
and Bascom Cuffin. The sounds of the Tokyo train system were recorded by iCandy UK and are available at www.freesound.org people slash iCandy UK. We'll be coming to you a couple times a month with more interviews like this one, as well as shorter segments asking a variety of anthropologists questions like, what is anthropology and how did you become an anthropologist? You can find Cultural Anthropology at colanth.org, search for us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at colanth. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast player.